Amen. You can be seated. That song illustrates so well how that the birth of Jesus gives us hope for the coming return of Jesus. And we will be caught up in the air to meet Him and sing with those angels. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, I want you to take them to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter number 9. Isaiah chapter number 9. So many places and passages to turn to as we focus in on why we celebrate uh, this time of year. It's not just for family. You know, a lot of people, uh, they have divorced Christmas from a biblical anchorage or understanding, and now it's just a time for families to unite, for to share exchanging of gifts and not even really knowing why we do such a thing. And so what our focus is in this time of year is to emphasize not only the gospel ramifications of Jesus coming, but also the true reason for our celebration. And so in doing so, we turn to Isaiah chapter 9. And I want us to look at a familiar passage of Scripture, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Isaiah in his prophecy is is looking into the future. And here's what he says in verse number 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to hold it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. For this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I want to talk to you on this subject this morning. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. I read a story a while back about a TV reporter And the TV reporter was on the streets in Tokyo, Japan, interviewing Christmas shoppers in Japan. And as as they're walking back and forth, the, the interviewer is asking this question, what is the meaning of Christmas? And although uh, that reporter uh, got many varied answers, one of young ladies that he, he interviewed uh, said this. She began to laugh and said, I think, I don't know for sure, but I think it has something to do with the death of Jesus. Well, at least she knows it had something to do with Jesus because I dare say many of the people in our day and time that celebrate Christmas have completely divorced Jesus from this celebration. But Christmas is the focus not on the death of Jesus, but on the birth of Jesus. A birth that was revealed through prophetic writings hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. In 1745, Charles Wesley, Charles Wesley's hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, was published. I don't know if you've read many of Charles Wesley's hymns, but that whole time period, the 1700s, has some of the best hymns and lyrics in them. And Charles Wesley wrote this hymn, Come Thou Long Expected, uh, 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 Long Expected. Uh, uh, a long-expected Jesus, and in that hymn, he, 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 he underlines the wonder of the birth 
of the Christ child. Notice what he says in the first verse. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. You see, Wesley's words are alluding to the ancient prophecies that are being fulfilled in the coming of God's Messiah in Jesus. Now, here in our text, the the prophet Isaiah, he is looking through the annals of time down prophetically into the coming of the Messiah. And he zeroes in on the birth of the Lord Jesus through divine prophecy. And he reveals to us the glorious reality of Christmas's true meaning. That true meaning can often be muddled in ribbons and bows, in decorations and lights, by celebrations and gatherings. But I believe that each one of us can hold tight to in our hearts the true reason for this celebration by looking at four truths I'm going to draw from this text. So we're going to look at four truths from this prophecy that can help us all hold close that true meaning of what we are celebrating. Number one, I want you to see first of all that this is this prophecy has to do with the Christ child's or the coming Messiah's relating delivery. Look at me in verse number 6 again and look at this phrase that starts out the verse 4. To us a child is born. You know, the birth of any child is in its own right a miracle. The births of my children were, were mind-blowing, life-altering. It, it made for memorable moments and not only in the life of all my children but one in particular when Evan was born. Uh, Coming up on 21 years ago, it's unbelievable. My son Evan, he was born at time. I remember, I remember when he was born, they laid him over there on that little heat lamp. You know, he's, he's just kind of sitting out there in that heat lamp and taking all the warmth in. And it was just so surreal that I, I just had to reach out and grab his leg to make sure that this was really, this had really just happened. My, my son had been, had been born. You see, it is a miracle. Every birth is a miracle. But the wonder of wonders, the most significant birth in all of history, miracle of miracles, is not in just a baby born in Bethlehem, but a God-man born in Bethlehem. I heard James Merritt say it years ago, and I believe it to be true. It is not a very far stretch to believe that a man could become God, but the most unbelievable mystery of all is that God became man. And that is exactly what happened in the person of Jesus. We know in the New Testament, Revelation, the gospel biographies of the Lord Jesus, how that this child born in Bethlehem stable would become a great man. He would grow to become great and reveal himself to be God, a very God. God born in the flesh. And yet, he was born among us. One of us. Jesus did not simply appear. You know, that always always makes me wonder, why didn't Jesus do what was done oftentimes in the Old Testament? 
You read the Old Testament accounts, you'll often find the angel of the Lord appearing. Do you remember that story in Daniel? I've been enamored with the story of Daniel again over the past week and how how that when the three Hebrew children were condemned to die in the fiery furnace and how that Nebuchadnezzar, he fired up that furnace hotter than it had ever been before and those three were shoved into that furnace to die a fiery death. But when he looked closely in there, he didn't see three, he saw four and the fourth was likened unto the Son of God. I tell you, he appeared, Jesus appeared in that time. In the time of Joshua, when Joshua stood poised to go into battle with Jericho, how did he, I no doubt, was wondering about what to do and how God had planned this victory out. And as he was out one night, he come across a man with sword drawn who was the angel of the Lord ready to take over the battle. Time and time again in the Old Testament, the Son of God just appeared. No doubt Jesus could have done the same. There were angelic appearances in the New Testament. Jesus could appear to His followers and come before them as the Son of God. He could have shown up and did miracles. He could have shown up and did teachings. What was the sense in Jesus coming and becoming one of us? Well, it is of vital importance. Jesus was no figment of the imagination. Jesus didn't hover over the ground. He was flesh and blood just like you and I because He was born as one of us. He became one of us. He became flesh, born of the human seed. He became one of us that He might die for us. That's the essential part. Hebrews 2.14, listen to how it puts it. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus must have come in the flesh. First Peter 1.20 He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Hebrews 10.5 Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. The Son of God Most High left the high thrones of heaven and the adoration of angels and descended down to this world to all of its pain, all of its suffering, all of its mockery, all of its envy and strife and hatred and became one of us. As one author said, Jesus left the glory of heaven to clothe Himself in the garb of humanity. From the moment of His birth, Jesus knew what it was to be cold, what it was to be hungry, what it was to suffer the experiences of pain and suffering in life. He became one of us to die for us. In history, there is a man by the name of of Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. I know he's got a... I left one of his names out. He's got a handle about that long, but... He was a significant figure in church history. He was a landowner in Germany. He had provided a space for Czechoslovakian Christian refugees to come and live there without persecution. They had fled Czechoslovakia, the Catholic church there, and had come to reside at Zinzendorf's land under his protection. Well, Count Zinzendorf was 
in a place to see the coronation of a king and there he met a slave, a black slave from uh, from the island of St. Thomas, Anthony Ulrich. And Anthony Ulrich began to tell Zinzendorf, who was a Christian, tell Zinzendorf how that the slaves in St. Thomas Island had no hope of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the owners forbade them to even come near a church. They would be whipped to an inch of their life if they ever came near a church. And they would forbid anyone to speak to them. Uh, Count Zinzendorf came back to the folks in that Moravian community. That's what they were called, the Moravians. And he expressed this, uh, this anguish that he had in heart that these people will never hear the gospel. That day by day they're dying and going to hell. And he expressed that concern, how his heart stretched, how his heart went out to them. And so he begged them to pray that God would do something. Maybe raise up someone among them that they may go and share the gospel with them. But he also cautioned them. He said that anyone that would leave them and go to these people must be willing themselves to be brought into slavery, to become a slave just like them so that they may share the gospel. They would have to give up their liberty. They would have to give up their freedom. They would have to put themselves under the subjection of labor and harsh treatment in order to reach these slaves on St. Thomas Island. God began to do something in the young man's heart by the name of Johann Leonard Dauber. And Dauber could not, could not resist the call of the gospel and finally said, I'll go, I'll take the gospel to St. Thomas even if I have to sell myself into slavery. When he boarded the boat on the way to St. Thomas, his last words, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his sufferings. He made it to the island of St. Thomas. Thomas and there begin to interact with the slaves and the slave owners would not dare put a white man into slavery. Therefore he had free course because he was bold enough to ignore their warnings and share the gospel with those on the island of St. Thomas. Although Dauber never had to become a slave, yet that's what Jesus did for us. He came and gave up everything, laid aside his glories as the divine Son of God, worshipped his angels to become one of us. That he might die for us. Oh, the story of the Lord Jesus becoming one of us. In the incarnation we see this. In the Old Testament, you know, the reason that he had to come in a fleshly body is because in order to be a sacrifice for us, it had to be kind for kind. Ever since the Garden of Eden, God had exampled the sacrificial offering. When, when Adam and Eve had, were caught in their sin and God had to deal with their sin and gave the curse, He also took animals and took their skins to cover their nakedness. That is the first example of a sacrificial offering for covering. Ever since that moment, man has been sacrificing animals to try to atone for sin, but that will never work. In the Old Testament, when a sinner would come to the temple, he would bring that most innocent of the flock, that innocent lamb, whose throat would be cut, body would be flayed, burned on the altar as a, as a sacrifice. But there is no way, Hebrews tells us, there's no way that the blood of bulls and of goats or the ashes of an heifer could forgive sin. But Jesus Christ came in the flesh to die for us kind for kind, the innocent, sinless one to die on our behalf. The Lord Jesus came to become one of us that He might die for us. It was a relating delivery. 
In Jesus coming in that body, He is related to us and therefore could die for us. Notice also His retained deity. In verse number 6 it says, Not only for to us a child is born, but it then also says, To us a son is given. This statement clearly defines who Jesus is. He is not only a child born, He is a son given. (laughs) He is both man and God. Jesus was not half man and half God. He was all man and yet at the same time all God. This second statement identifies Him as a life that clearly already existed. And Jesus has already existed from the beginning of time. In Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our own, after our own likeness. Jesus was alive at the very dawn of creation with the Father in perfect harmony. John 1.1 makes it very succinct and tells us of Jesus' eternal deity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus did not begin on that starry night in Bethlehem where the Virgin Mary gave birth to that little baby boy. He has always existed from the beginning of time. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. Colossians 1, 15-17 tells us Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or the or authorities, and all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things exist. I think that's pretty thorough, don't you? The Apostle Paul makes it clear that Jesus was before all things, the Creator of all things, even to this very hour, the sustainer, the holding together of all things. This pre-existent Christ was the beloved Son of God the Father. Jesus was the Son given by the Father. I'll never... I I was thinking as I put together this message and was going over it, and I cannot recall if I have already told this story or not. It's pretty early in the ministry before you start repeating stories. I'm sorry, but if I have, I apologize. Because this story has such a... had, had such an impact on my life. We were... We were at a meeting. My pastor was preaching at the time and my wife and I were there. We were part of the choir. We were singing together. Evan was was a baby small enough where I could tuck him under my arm. I mean, he was tiny. And during the service, something happened. I had to go out to the car to get something. I think it was formula or something like that. And so Evan was crying as well. So I kind of tucked him up under my coat, under my arm like this and headed out to the parking lot to get whatever was needed. And so I went out to the old green green van, boys, you'd call it what? The wagon. (laughs) Well, the wagon. I went out to the wagon and I opened it up. Not a covered wagon, but the old van we had. And I reached inside to grab that stuff and was putting it together. And I looked up on the hill and across from the church of the hills, right around Easter time, they had three crosses on the top of that hill. And one of them in the middle had a purple sash blowing in the wind. And I stood there with Evan in my arms looking 
looking at that cross up on that hill and God seemed to stir in my heart and I, the question came to mind, why don't you take your son up there and take his little tender hands and place him on that cross and nail him? Why don't you let you, why don't you take your son up there to be spat upon and smacked and whipped and beaten and I hung close to my son, tightened him to my breast. I said, no, no, never would I do that and God seemed to say to my heart, that's what I did for you. That's how much I loved you. How much I care about you. God knowing all things that would come in the life of Jesus willingly, freely gave His Son that night in Bethlehem. A father who would do such a thing, who would do such a thing like that would have caused one to maybe question, maybe question his love. There are many in theological circles today uh, that call this, this theology of substitutionary atonement, substitutionary atonement of Jesus a, a, a type of divine child abuse. That a father would take a son and would willingly, knowingly allow this thing to happen. But we know that God the Father loved His Son. He had said so much in His own lifetime. Jesus didn't cease to be God's Son when He became a man. This God, uh, this is God giving His greatest treasure, His very own eternal Son for our sake. We know the Father loved the Son, Ephesians 5.20 Jesus' very lips said this, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works of these will He show Him so that you may marvel. John 17, 24, Jesus is praying His high priestly prayer to His Father. Father, I desire that they also whom You have given Me may be with Me where I am to see My glory that You have given Me because You loved Me before the foundation of the world. Jesus proclaims the love of His Father. This is not divine child abuse that God is doing to His Son. He loves His Son. But why would He do such a thing? John 3.16 succinctly tells us that God so loved the world, loved you and you and you and you, loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He retained His deity as the gift of God for our sin. The relating delivery, the retained deity. Thirdly, His ruling dominion. Look at verse number 6 in the latter portion. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulder. Skip down to verse number 7. Of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David over and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness for this time forth and forevermore. Bible teacher John Phillips wrote, Isaiah's great statement does not restrict itself to the first coming of Christ, but leaps across the ages to His second coming. It takes us to the, it takes us to the cradle and then straight to the throne. You see, in our text, if you'll look at that last, uh, in, in, the, in the sixth verse, 
and look at that uh, first semicolon. You see that semicolon there? That is a jump between Beth, uh, between Bethlehem all the way to the second coming of Jesus Christ. He goes all the way across the ages to the coming of Jesus Christ. And it makes sense. Because much of your Old Testament prophecy, what does it do? It overlooks the church age. It looks right across it. Many people have talked about Old Testament prophecy as being as looking from mountaintop to mountaintop and never seeing the valleys in between. And I think that's what we see here. From the coming of Christ, the son, the, the child born, the son given, to the government shall be upon his shoulders, there is that church age, that time of the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul himself said in the New Testament that the church is a mystery. Those Old Testament prophets could not quite see how this would come to pass. You read the book of Isaiah, many Old Testament scholars would say, well, there's two Messiahs, one Messiah that would suffer and one Messiah that would be a king. There was all kinds, but they could not see the church age, what would take place. But in that semicolon, we are taken from Bethlehem all the way to the reign of Jesus Christ in that millennial reigning time. You see, He will come and rule from the seat of His father David. This verse skips to the second coming. You know, these words here of description, I, I skipped over them intentionally, but look, go back to verse number 6. The beautiful and wonderful description of this person, Jesus. He shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These words, we could stop here and spend several weeks on just every individual title. They are an inexhaustible fountain of detail about the person and the, uh, of Jesus Christ, His past, His presence, and His future. I like what one author, how he put it. He said the title, Wonderful Counselor, means there is no problem He can't solve. And in the title, Mighty God, there's no power He cannot subdue. In the title, Everlasting Father, there's no period He does not span. In the title, Prince of Peace, there is no person He cannot save. Amen. And so we could go on and talk about this description. But this description not only gives us insight into the character of Christ, but it also describes the reign of His second coming. You know, I saved it for next week. It's one of my favorite Christmas hymns. I'm saving it for next week. But it is Isaac Watts' Joy to the World. It's the most traditional of traditional Christmas songs. But in that song, Isaac Watts not only talks about Jesus coming the first time in Bethlehem, but just like our text here, spans across time to talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ. The song looks past the manger and into the majesty of Jesus. Yes, when He comes, when He comes, every heart will prepare Him room. But it also speaks of how sin and sorrow will cease. Is that where we are today? No, I'm afraid not. That's not where we are living today. 
It also talks about the thorns of Adam's curse will be eradicated. No, that curse is alive and well and tearing up lives all around us. The wonders of His love will be manifest in every place on the earth. Our text talks about justice and righteousness. That's not where we are. Injustice is all around us in all of its ugly facets and forms. No, we are not in the time when Christ reigns from that throne of David. No, this description is that glorious coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. A kingdom that will not have a passing duration like so many of this world's, you know, the history books are littered with kingdoms that have come and that have reigned, that have had high notes, and that have faltered. And it happens again and again and again. When Christ comes to establish His kingdom, it will have no end. It will go on and on and on forever. No passing duration, but a perpetual one. His triumph will not be deterred. No coup will dethrone Him. No weakness will remove Him. And no enemy will subvert Him. Psalm 145.13 Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures throughout all generations. Hebrews 1.8 tells us, But of the Son He says, O Throne, uh, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of, uh, of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Jesus here in this text, in the same breath of the coming of the Messiah, is a celebration of His ultimate rule. Prophecy in the Old Testament saw those things side by side. But in the reality, looking back, we see they are separated. Why? A space of grace. (laughs) That's what the church age is. Thank God He's not come back to rule in judgment and in righteousness. Thank God He's not here today because the gates of God's grace are as wide as they've ever been, inviting all who will come unto this King. They can be reconciled. They can make things right with God today. I've often had ministry in the jail and they'll oftentimes tell me, oh, Brother Ronnie, you pray for me. Pray for my lawyer. Pray that we can settle out of court and I don't have to stand before that judge. Listen, the same is true in this day of grace. Hey, your best bet is to settle out of court. Your best bet is come bow and knee to Jesus Christ and relinquish it all to Him and ask Him to forgive you of your sin and give it all to Him and settle out of court today. Make it all right, all right with Him. His relating delivery, He became one of us. His retained deity, He was the God-man. God's only Son to live among us. His ruling dominion is yet to come. It lies in the future. Also, His redeeming destiny. Look at verse number 6. I want you to look at the words closely with me. Maybe I overemphasize them, but I do so for an important point. Verse 6 says, For, notice this, To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Notice those two little words, to us. They're repeated twice in these verses. Two little words that reveal the redeeming purpose for Christ Jesus coming to this earth in a manger. To us. Notice, in these words we find the ultimate destiny of this given Son. You see, since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, there has been a separation 
between God and man. But with the separation came a promise. A promise to, uh, to Eve that there would be one born, not of the seed of the man, all through the Bible, all through the Old Testament, you'll find that the seed of the man is always given. The seed of the man, the seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac, of Isaac the seed of Jacob. But God said it's the seed of the woman. The virgin born Son of God would produce the one to come and die for us. And that is Mary. Who would be, he would be born of the seed of the woman. But that separation has existed since the fall in the garden with the promise that one day the seed of the woman would make a way to rejoin and reconcile sinful men and a holy God. Here in Isaiah, the prophet is, uh, we, uh, was seeing this promise being fulfilled in this baby being born. You see, although man could not approach God on this first Christmas day, God drew near to man. God made a a way of escape. God brought in that lamb without spot and without blemish. He approached men, Micah 5.2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth. For me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old from ancient days. Isaiah, the same prophecy earlier. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel, which being in translated is God with us. The phrase to us, that Isaiah gives us means that God kept His promise. He kept His promise not only to send His Son to be a person among us, but to send His Son to be a sacrifice for us. By becoming one of us, Jesus can not only relate to us, but He can redeem us. Although these words point to a baby in a manger, the real focus of His coming is that is what Isaiah would talk about in Isaiah 53. This promised one of Israel that is born in chapter 9 would grow up to be the one in Isaiah 53 that would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace would be upon Him and with His stripes we are healed. He is talking about one who would be our Redeemer. The separation between God and man could only be bridged by a judgment upon sin. I could not die for the sins of my family because I must pay for my own sins. You could not die for the sins of your spouse or your son or daughter, but you must die for your own sins. But Jesus, who is the sinless Son of God, in Him was no sin. His disciples spent three and Three and a half years, 24 hours a day, seven days a week with Jesus. And not one time did they ever find anything to convict them. In Him was no sin, neither was guile or deceit found in His mouth. No, Jesus was the sinless Lamb of God to take our place on the cross, to pay our penalty, our judgment for sin. All that a loving God would do on the behalf of sinful men was wrapped up in a baby given in Bethlehem. I love how one author put it. A baby's hands in Bethlehem were small and softly curled. 
but held within their dimpled grasp the hope of all the world. <laughs> Jesus, born in Bethlehem, was that single hope for all of mankind. The baby born not of the sinful seed of Adam, but divinely placed by the Holy Spirit in the womb of that peasant girl would become that sinless Son of God whose hands would be nailed to a cross, whose back would be riven with stripes, whose side would be speared until He died. Buried in a tomb, lay there three days and three nights. And then on that third glorious day, raised from the grave, proving that He is the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Thank God Jesus came. When we see that Christmas tree, when we see those stars and everything that is around us and all of the things that ought to make us think that God gave a baby that would be a man and die on a cross for us. It's not necessarily about the Christmas tree. It's about Calvary's tree. It's all about Him and what He's done for us in Jesus. It ought to be our celebration. In the lesser known second verse of Charles Wesley's Christmas hymn, Come thou long expected Jesus. We sing these words. Born thy people to deliver. Born a, king, a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit. Rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all sufficient merit. Raise us to thy glorious throne. Jesus has come in that babe in Bethlehem to die on a cross so that we who are sinful can be brought to God through faith in Him. This promised child, this Savior, is not only my Savior, He can be your Savior today. If you know not the Lord Jesus, if you've never placed your faith and trust in Him, I call you, come. Come, that's the message of the Gospel. Come, repent and believe. Repent means to turn, change direction. You're going one direction in life. Do 180 and come to Jesus. Believing on Him, trusting Him and what He done for you on the cross. By that, God will impart His Spirit, adopt you into His family, and Jesus would no longer be your judge, but He would be your brother. He would be your advocate. He'd be the one on your behalf to stand, uh, to stand before God on your behalf. Oh, listen, come to Jesus. Let's all stand as we have a, a song of invitation. Our text talks about He is the Prince of Peace. I, I thought about this hymn, Wonderful Peace. I believe it's in page 290 in your hymnal 290. I don't think I put the words up there. 290. Wonderful Peace. Let's sing Let's sing this hymn together, 290. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, whether you do it at the seat, whether you do it at the altar, I beg you just to do it today. Come to Jesus. Don't put it off another day. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not. Everybody's making plans. What are we going to do two weeks from now? A day from now? What are we going to do this weekend? What kind of parties? And nobody's thinking about right now. Listen, you're not promised tomorrow. You're not promised next hour. You're not promised 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock. Today is the day of salvation. Come and put your faith and trust in Jesus.
Wonderful peace. One, maybe two verses.